The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone, and special welcome to all the folks who are new tonight. Thanks to Mary Young, who taught for me last week. I was out teaching a retreat on the East Coast. Nice to be back. And I thought I'd start just by checking in about the basic practice. I'll say a few words, and then it might be nice to hear from people. It's amazing how much we understand about the mind just in trying to understand what this practice is. Or another way of hearing this is, so much of what we learn, for those of us who have been practicing for a while, so much of what we learn over the years of regular practice, formal practice, daily life practice, is we understand what the practice is. And I'm sure those of you who have been around know that it's like every fourth word here is practice. And it can get a little irritating. It's like, But the reason we use that word practice is we have to have some word that is opposite of what we would call being swept away by the habits of our mind or more generally the habits of our culture. Some of you know in that time of the Buddha, the big natural disaster was flooding. He was taught mostly on the Ganges Plain, this big river, of course, and you know, back then they didn't have early warning systems and after a thunderstorm or the, a lot of melting, the flood could just sweep a whole town away. And you wouldn't even know it. It'd be too late. The water would rise and before you knew it, everything was being swept away. So the Buddha used that image of that natural disaster for the normal state of affairs for human beings. And if you watch your mind, you'll see that this is a real apt description. Like we'll be going about our day, and then there'll be some experience, something to trigger what is rightly called a flood. And we just get swept away. And we forget everything except the content of what we're being swept away by, until at some point, could be days later, but usually, you know, at least minutes, if not hours later, the pain of having been caught up in that train of thought sometimes can break through when we realize, oh my God, what's going on? Same, in the very much the same way we can wake out of a dream sometimes in the middle of the night that's had the mind completely, both the mind and body completely locked up, tensed, involved, attached to the content. But then we wake up for some reason. Maybe the dream gets so intense, the content and the attachment to the content gets so intense, the pain wakes us up. And it's like, what was that? But the interesting thing is how easy it is to fall back in. Even a nightmare. It's like we want to go back. Was it really scary? (laughs) What was I thinking about? It's just interesting, this attachment to intensity, and in particular the intensity of attachment, or the intensity of identification. It really gets our attention. So, we know this experience. This should be, this is like a basic human wisdom, or basic human spiritual insight, 
is the understanding, the direct understanding, direct experience of having been swept away many, many times today, let alone through our lives. We've been swept away, and that being swept away is uh, a pain, right? It's suffering. We really want to get that. If we don't get that, we could say, from a spiritual point of view, that we're mostly blind. Like, if we don't get that basic instinct that it is possible for this mind or heart to get caught in some train of thought, some emotional, cognitive process that is, in a sense, all-consuming, and as the mind is caught in it, both energetically, mentally, physically, energetically, it gets really tight, entangled, so that at the end, whenever that cycle breaks, and we're no longer caught, there's a residual. The body and mind feels all tight, all entangled, heavy. And what do we want to do when we're, we notice that we're all tight and entangled? We want to be distracted. We go looking for another something or other to sweep us away, so we don't have to be with the residual of having been swept away. And it's this dynamic that the Buddha calls the cycles of suffering, samsara is the word, you've probably heard that. Samsara means that we keep getting swept away. So I thought it would be useful for us to reflect on how we practice, and how does it relate to this pattern of being swept away and the suffering or tension, mental tension, that arises because we get swept away. Sometimes we get swept away into dramas that involve anger or impatience or frustration. Sometimes we get swept away into dramas that involve craving, wanting things to be this way, hoping, wishing, liking. Sometimes we get swept away by being identified with confusion, not knowing. So then, what does being attentive to the breath have to do with being swept away? Or what is bringing the attention back to the present moment? Because in that pattern of being swept away, the real movement out of it is to recognize in that moment that the mind is swept away. Mind can either be identified with the content, the, the flood, or it can, in a sense, step back and know, oh, being swept away is like this. Being lost in thought is like this. Being all energetically caught up is like this. We have an acronym we use sometimes, RAIN, R-A-I-N. And it really outlines the practice. So I'll just mention this and then see if people have some reflections from your practice. So the first thing we need to do is we have to recognize. This is the stepping out of delusion. And the way that it is in practice, practice always depends on wisdom. This is a path of understanding or a path of wisdom. We can't just like, you know, I, when and I went to McAllister's gym the other week. Uh, Wynn teaches at McAllister College, my wife, and and uh, we were working out, and, you know, it's a really nice, they have a really nice student uh, rec center, and uh, 
they have these wonderful flat screen TVs with different stations and you can get on your bike or your exercise machine and you can watch or they, they have these devices where you can plug your iPad or iPod into the machine and somehow, I don't know, it works. <laughs> plug your earphones in. I forget exactly how it works. but And the, we might think that our practice is that way that I just can go through the motions and pay attention to the breath and bring my attention back to the breath or do something reflexively and that would be spiritual practice or this path of awakening. But one of the things that's really central to get about this practice is that it requires an ongoing intelligence. The mind has to be not only doing something, it has to be interested in what it's doing. So there's a reflectiveness not a reflexiveness, but a reflectiveness in, a, in an ongoing way. The mind is reflecting on what's happening and how it is, how it's relating to the moment, and then what's happening. So that we're really seeing cause and effect. Like the kind of attitude, the kind of mind I'm bringing to the moment has an effect. What is that effect? When I'm being disconnected or in denial... That has an effect. What is that effect? When I'm being greedy or have a strong sense of lacking, what's that effect? When I'm frustrated or impatient, angry, what is the effect in the moment? So that's the reflectiveness, that intelligence, that spiritual intelligence. The mind is interested in how things are unfolding, how this experience of being alive is unfolding. And it's in particular interested in tracking the way the mind is and how things unfold. And in Buddhism we call this like learning the difference between being skillful and unskillful. So in a way this is another insight that how the mind is relating the mood, attitude, the view in the mind is as relevant as anything is more relevant than being an old person or a young person, being a male or a female, or not identified, more important than any of the particular conditions in our life is how is the mind relating to the moment? What is the mind doing about this experience? What is it adding or constructing around it? What is it refusing to see or projecting? And this requires an ongoing interest, this very active part of practice. Because you know what we'd like? You know, we don't want to recognize the way it is. We just want somebody to tell us, you know, if you just do this, this problem will go away. But what the Buddha says, yeah, you just need to do one thing, but that one thing is you have to understand in a continuous way. Sharon Salzberg uh, has this great line, and by the way, she's coming to Minneapolis. We're sponsoring a public talk, and there's a two-day non-residential retreat the first weekend in October. You can get information on our newsletter. I think the public talk on Friday night is now sold out, but we're looking for a bigger venue. We already, it's not going to be here. We're using a room at the U. I think there were 500 places, so I think 
we're looking for a bigger room at the U. But anyway, she has this great line called something like the torment of continuity. Because what the Buddha in this path is asking, this path of practice is asking from us, is a continuity of this interest in the way it is, the way the mind is, how the mind is relating. And it's, it's intense to sustain that interest. Because so much of what we've been conditioned to want to do is I get to a comfortable place where we can not have any responsibility. We don't have a responsibility to be a spiritual person or to be doing anything. So initially in practice, there's a lot of uh, difficulty because we're raising the energy to sustain this interest, interest in the mind, how the mind is relating. Now, there does come a point where that awareness, that interest, that mindful presence, and mindful presence especially of the mind itself, becomes second nature. And then the practice becomes not overdoing it. It's like learning how to let go of unnecessary efforting. And there are moments that arise in practice where the mindfulness is effortless. And if in those moments you try to practice, you blow it. You ruin it, really. But that's not where we're at most of the time. Most of the time, you know, as beginners, and I, I still put myself in that category, even though I've been practicing sincerely, daily, for 30 years now, almost every day for 30 years, over 30 years now, 31 or 2 now, um, I still consider myself, in the great scheme of things, a beginner. And so a lot of the work I'm doing is finding the effort, the appropriate effort, to be interested. And it's a very particular effort. It's not an effort that requires tension in the body or mind. It's an effort to remember to be interested. Actually, being interested doesn't take a lot of effort. But remembering to be interested takes some effort. Because there's so many other things to get lost in. We have to remember to be interested in the here and now. Like, you know, we always use these examples like... You can touch your thigh or you can touch your other hand with one of your hands. I'm touching my lectern. You know, we have that contact. And just noticing the sensations of that, it's not so hard to know these sensations of touching, of pressure, warmth maybe, or hardness, or whatever you're feeling whatever the quality of those sensations. But in the great scheme of our life, knowing the present moment happening of touching just doesn't come up very often. It just thinks so, it feels so much more appropriate to worry about something or to hope for something. And then when we're lost in those thoughts, we're not really recognizing the way that it is. So this first part of the acronym, to recognize, in a sense, is the most important. Just that realization that the mind can awaken to, oh, it's like this, is really amazing. It's really a stepping out of delusion. Because when we're lost in our thoughts, 
it's like being in a dream. Quite, you know, this has been used by philosophers and spiritual folks for a long time, this metaphor of being lost in a dream. That this normal conventional reality is as, it's as if we are lost in a dream. And we can step out of that dream by recognizing the dream, basically. Like, so whatever drama has been occurring, we can step out and realize, oh, it's just thinking. Just thinking being known. And then, of course, even in that moment, that whole drama is falling apart, like a house of cards just falls flat. Because the recognition of thinking being just thinking is not the cause for the continuation of the drama. It's the cause for the drama to fall apart. So that first move is to recognize, and the second two, in the acronym RAIN, accept for the A, an interest for the eye, or investigation for the eye. This is what really helps to sustain the recognizing it's like this now. That present moment awareness will have a moment of it from time to time, even people who don't do any particular meditative training will have moments of mindfulness. They'll just arise, and the mind will recognize, oh, it's like this. But to sustain that, it takes a particular chemistry of acceptance and interest. Acceptance is really about this receptive quality of the mind or heart. So we're uncovering this capacity of our heart to just receive what's happening in the moment. To just trust that whatever is arising in terms of physical sensations or thought or emotion or sight or sound, that in this moment, it's already this way. So when we uncover the receptive, accepting quality of the mind, it doesn't mean we just let everything happen and we never respond or do anything. It just means in this moment, it's already this way. So you see that acceptance is the only sane response to the present moment. And acceptance doesn't doesn't uh, imply that we're not going to respond. It just means as we're responding, the heart is completely owning, completely accepting that it's like this now. Like I could be in the middle of a burning building, flames all around, sprinkler system, smoke, and there can be a profound acceptance of the danger, of the fear that's arising in the heart, of the sort of animal instinct to survive that's probably live and well in the mind, the adrenaline coursing through the body. I could be completely accepting of that, the reality of that, and trying to get the hell out of the building at the same time. And this is the real trick. So we need to understand this potential for acceptance and how whenever your mind feels uh, threatened by acceptance because you feel like you're going to be taken advantage of, that you should remember you're misunderstanding what acceptance is. Acceptance is moment by moment by moment by moment. It's not telling you how to live. It's not telling you what choices you should make or whether you should do something or not do something. Acceptance is an understanding. It's a wisdom that understands it's already this way now. The temperature of my body, it's already this way. So to resist the coolness in the room, 
for me, it feels a little cool. I have a vent right behind me. So to resist that is insane, literally, because it's already this temperature. So the only appropriate response is to yield to what's already true. If I have my, my mind is already caught, then I need to yield. Oh, it's like this. And it's the yielding, it's the receptivity that allows a, for a really fruitful response. So to sustain that mindful recognition, the R, we need to accept and we need to be interested. Interest or investigation is the active part of the spiritual practice and acceptance is this receptive. And we need both of these. And generally speaking, we'll be better at one than the other. Some of us, just as personality types, we're pretty good at the assertive part of things. Another of you will be pretty good at the receptive part of things. But we need both of these qualities developed. How to yield. And then in meditation practice and daily life practice, there's an assertive part where the mind is interested in the way that it is. And in Buddhist terms, this means interested in what's predominant. So we may train with the breath, bringing the attention back to the breath, sustaining attention with the breath. If some of you work with hearing as your anchor for your meditation. Some of you work with just general experience of body sensation as your primary anchor, a place to keep bringing the attention back. But we have to understand that as our practice unfolds, more and more, the object of meditation is the way that it is. So that means what's predominant. So like, if I'm feeling a little defensive, or if I'm feeling some calm, or if I'm feeling some underlying anxiety, or if I'm feeling dull, or if I'm feeling really bright, if I'm feeling really a sense of lack, these are often what's predominant in a moment not the actual sensations of the breath touching the nostrils, as useful as that is as a training. What's really relevant is how the mind is relating in the moment. That's, that's the direction we go in the practice. Mindfulness of the mind, basically. That doesn't mean we don't train with the body. One of the easiest ways to be mindful of the mind is to be sustaining awareness with the breath, for example, knowing the breath coming in, knowing the breath going out, having some continuity of mindful awareness with the breath, and then all of a sudden the mind does something. It starts to worry, and that worrying interrupts the continuity of attention with the breath. But now the attention is going to know the mind, the worry, but it's going to know it in a really balanced way because it had been cultivating a, a very steady, balanced attention to the breath, and then when the mind, some aspect of the mind arises in our experience, then that balanced knowing knows the mind. Oh, it's like this. Worry is like this. Judging, comparing is like this. It's just this being known. And that's, that's where interest comes in, is that interest is this capacity to, it's like a thread of what's predominant, what's relevant, how the mind is relating. And the interest can follow that. It follows the thread of what's relevant, what's predominant. 
Sometimes in Buddhism we talk about this in terms of suffering and the end of suffering. Because that's actually, for a human being, that's the most relevant thing. How is the mind right now, in this moment, setting in motion the experience of stress? Or how is the mind in this moment setting in motion the release of stress? Is there anything more relevant than that? There isn't, really. So this is what we, this is what we mean by interest. Now we develop interest with neutral objects, like can you develop an interest in the breath and sustain that interest? Can you develop an interest in walking and sustain the interest in the physicality of walking instead of looking at everybody and having opinions about who they are and, and then thinking, oh, I'm being bad, I shouldn't do that, and then thinking about the lake and, and the mind flits around like this, having, having different sort of responses to things and then judging its response to things and then judging its judgment about, <coughs> and that's kind of what we do most of the day. So we train in cultivating interest, that clear attention that in a sense is penetrating the surface level of things. So the surface level, like in terms of mindfulness of breathing, the surface level is, oh, I'm here sitting at common ground aware of my breath. That's a surface level because that's all concept. I'm is a concept. Here, location is a concept. Sitting is a concept. Sitting is not the experience of sitting, it's the idea, a picture of me sitting here at common ground, watching my breath. Even the word breath is a concept, of course. So we go, interest takes us through the surface level to the actual experience of breathing in or breathing out, the physicality, the sensation level of that. So we need to step out of delusion with a moment of recognition, oh, it's like this now. So we're stepping out of the conceptual mode and we're recognizing it's like this. And then to sustain that recognizing, that mindful attention, we need acceptance and interest. So that's the middle part of the acronym RAIN, R-A-I-N. And then the last part, the N, is non-attachment or non-identification. And that's more of an insight. It isn't something we can do, but when we are able to recognize it's like this and then sustain that. We're sustaining that present moment awareness and what that reveals is the changing nature, the ephemeral, insubstantial nature of whatever is being known. And it doesn't even have to be the same object. It's the sustaining of present moment awareness. Because like I said, the continuity we're looking for is the continuity of the way that it is. It doesn't have to be the knowing the breath, knowing the breath, knowing the breath, knowing the breath, knowing the breath. It's knowing the way that it is now, knowing the way that it is now, knowing the way that it is now. So there could be multiple objects that are being known. It could be knowing the in-breath, knowing the in-breath, feeling some shame, knowing shame, knowing shame, knowing forgiveness, feeling the body sitting, Hearing, coughing, hearing, hearing, breathing in, it's like this. But we're sustaining that present moment awareness. When we can sustain through acceptance and interest the present moment awareness, then the impermanent, unsatisfying and impersonal nature of experience just starts to shine through. And that's what I mean by an insight. You can't go looking for it. The way you go 
the way you support the insight is you recognize it's like this, and you sustain that simple present moment recognition. It's like this now. This is what we mean by mindfulness. We're sustaining that mindfulness, and then the impersonal nature arises, the changing in impersonal nature. And out of that blooms the insight or the understanding of non-attachment. Non-attachment is the fruit of practice. Non-clinging, non-grasping, non-identification, or if you want to put it in the positive, you call it freedom. Freedom from attachment, peace, the peace of non-attachment, liberation, being liberated from the weight, the burden of attachment. So if anybody asks you, like, why do you meditate or why are you interested in mindfulness? You know, the simple answer is, in my life, I've directly experienced the suffering of attachment, the pervasiveness of attachment or identification, the insanity of attachment, and through my practice, I've begun to experience the peace, the liberation, the freedom of non-attachment. And this is something that can be realized through mindful attention. The continuity of mindful attention leads to the realization of non-attachment, the freedom of non-attachment, the liberation of non-attachment. Or one way the Buddha says it is the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion in the mind. The mind without greed, anger, and delusion is a mind that is liberated of greed, anger, and delusion. This is a real possibility. We've already bumped up against some of these moments, or experienced some of these moments. I mean, clearly, we've all had moments where we have been intensely identified with greed, aversion, delusion, right? And we know what that's like. And we've had moments when we've been less identified, less attached to greed, anger, delusion. And whether we've recognized those moments or not, we probably have had moments where there, there's been very little greed, anger, and delusion in the mind. And those moments are characterized by a lot of lightness, a lot of natural warmth and love and skill and freedom. And when we start recognizing those moments, we get very energized about the practice. It's like we catch the whiff, the scent of freedom. The Buddha says about the practice that it has one taste, and that's the taste of freedom, this unforgettable taste. And it really is unforgettable. When you have more significant glimpses of this freedom, it's like you've been carrying a 75-pound pack of rocks your whole life, and all of a sudden you put it down. You never knew you had that pack on. And then you put it down. So that first time you clearly put down the pack, it's an unforgettable experience. And basically the residual of a deep insight is I don't have to carry this pack, never had to carry it, and will never have to carry this pack. The heart never has to be burdened. Now, my heart may become burdened, may become entangled with the stuff of life again because of the force of habit, but it doesn't have to. And that's the flavor or the residual of the insight that we may get entangled, but we don't have to be entangled. We can be a parent, a citizen, partner, without the heart being burdened 
in those experiences. So I want to leave it here so we have a little bit more time tonight to talk, to hear from people how you've been practicing this non-attachment, how you've been practicing R-A-I-N, recognizing and then sustaining that through acceptance and interest, and realizing in moments the experience of non-attachment, non-identification. So please speak up if you have any questions about what I've said or if you have experiences from your own practice you'd like to share with the group. It's always nice to say your name. And Paul, maybe turn the lights on a little brighter. So what comes to mind? I've got yeah. another acronym for you. Um, for the rain, there's a fellow that heard speak um, to the San Quentin. San Quentin? Yeah. And the, the, the acronym is for the, the end part of the rain, for the not, not personal. If it's Q-tip, quit taking it personally. That's great. And it can be that simple. I mean, and that's really uh, another way to work with the eye. You know, that keeps the interest strong, the investigation strong, is to be interested in, like the Buddha would say, dukkha, or suffering, stress, and the end of stress. But what we, with some insight, you can go right to what you said, Dave, because we learn through insight, just by paying attention to our life, that Attention, stress in the mind, always correlates with taking things personally. And the release of stress in the mind always correlates with not taking it personally. So by using that little teaching, that keeps the mind really interested in what's predominant. Because what is predominant is, is the mind taking this personally right now or not? And if it's not taking it personally, then we should be interested in how liberating it is to not be taking the experience in the moment personally. And if we are taking it personally right now, like this is a moment we can practice with right now, like with this information you're getting, you don't have to take it personally. And if there's some joy or interest arising for you right now, you don't have to take it personally. But you don't have to be afraid of the joy or the interest or the faith or confidence or maybe disgust or boredom. So whatever it is that's arising... It can just be what it is. We can quit taking it personally. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, Emily. Hi. Um, I'm at a place in my practice where I have been for a few months much and more committed to the daily practice and to uh, reading you know, different authors and, and just focusing on that. And I, now I'm having a phase where I'm like a little bored with it. Um, and it's an interesting phase because half of me is really like, wow, this is great. Like, I, this is becoming more automatic and it's really much more pleasant. And things tend to be then much more simple. Yeah. And there's not the drama. And I notice the missing of the drama in some way. Except that I, I don't really miss it, but, I, but, but I'm attributing part of this morning to like this, this challenge of this transition of, of, like you spoke of the effort. You know, I think the sustained effort is fatiguing. Yeah. Or can be, and I think the the transition from what how I previously with my you know was was experiencing things to how it's becoming more not that way is is also something to grapple with. That's why I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts about that yeah. point in practice. Yeah. So Emily was saying that uh, she's been pretty steady recently in her practice, and things have settled down. There's more steadiness and evenness, and. Uh, 
now she's wondering if she's maybe, I don't know if you used the word bored, but a little like wondering, maybe missing the drama a little bit or missing the intensity a little bit. And this is very common because things will settle down at times in our practice. And it's interesting, we could have wanted this for so long, but then when it actually happens after a while, we don't like it anymore. And the key here is we have to find something of interest. We have to find the most relevant thing, which is still suffering the end of suffering. But now it's in a surprising place, like not liking the evenness or attachment or attraction to intensity, to drama. We have to see that. And we really, this is the place in our practice where we can notice the allegiance of the heart. The heart is in allegiance to drama, to excitement. And what we're doing is we're cultivating a taste for peace and for letting go. Now, it doesn't matter how many times you go towards drama because you can learn a lot. So when things are even and the mind doesn't like it and it creates a little drama, like even the little drama like, should I be doing this practice? That's called doubt, right? So you start doubting, like, should I be doing this practice, spending this much time practicing? Then you want to investigate, like, oh, now there's some intensity. I've got an interesting question. Should I be doing this? Or should I be checking my emails instead? And then you can notice the effect of that drama. Like, how is it in the mind and heart and body? Is it tight? Or is it releasing, liberating? You just check. And you'll see, if you're really honest and, and steady, you'll see that even little dramas are tight. Now, we have to do some thinking. It's not that thinking is bad. So I'm really talking about when the thinking is motivated through a mistrust of peace. That's, that's the kind of activity I'm talking about here. Because it's like, now, agitation is our resting place. This is like the normal state. And we have to change that allegiance where peace is our allegiance, our resting place. And we go out into activity, into intensity, when our life, when it, our life demands it, and we don't resist it at all. We just completely show up when things are messy or crazy. But as soon as that mind isn't needed to be involved on that level, it goes back to stillness and peace, to emptiness, to what's unformed. And we can find that, like, that space between thoughts. We can have a lot of thoughts, but what, what is that space between thoughts? Between the time when this thought ceases, but before the next thought has arisen. You know, the mind is unformed. It's empty. And that becomes our new home base. And it's a very nimble place. The mind is completely ready to inhabit form. You know, being the person who's doing this, being the person who's choosing, deciding. But then it's, as soon as that's done, there's no neurotic sense of needing it to continue, so it comes back. But first we have to get comfortable in this new home of peace and stillness and emptiness, non-attachment, non-grasping. And it, it's an acquired taste. But it's only the ego that has a problem with it. You know, the, the conditioning, the habit patterns of the mind that have been built upon stress and 
stress is like their home. It, it feels that part, those patterns feel naked without drama. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. What else? Yes, I don't know your name. Jen, oh yeah, from last night. Um, so, I think during a lot of reading, I um, So Jen was asking about, and this is a, a real shadow to Western Buddhism, because here in the West, not just with Buddhism, but basically every wisdom tradition that's ever existed that hasn't been completely lost is available to us. And, uh, you know, in the past, living in a more traditional society, you basically just have one wise person in the village, you know, or a couple. And... Uh, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be so complicated. So it's really complicated. And then the other piece to this is spirituality has now gotten tied up into business. So there are like all these books and all these products. And uh, it is it is definitely confusing. So like it or not, it's going to stay confusing to some degree. And what's really important is that we clarify the um, ends and then we go looking for means that are in line, are in line with the ends. So we need some sense of what the problem is. Because there's, there's no clarity unless we understand, well, what problem are you trying to solve? So what problem, Jen, are you trying to solve? Yeah. So trying to be more peaceful and stable in her, in her life. And so we're trying to solve the, the problem of moments of being unstable and not peaceful. So then we go looking for means. Like if we want to be peaceful, our practice should have that flavor embedded in it. And more we look, the more we see that the lack of peace is related to taking things personally. But you can check that out for yourself. You don't want to just believe it. But... This, this is like part of the roadmaps that you're going to hear from different teachers. And you just have to find something that makes sense, and then you start checking it out. And if it makes even more sense when you check it out, you check it out a little bit more. You get a little bit more information from that particular tradition. So there is a first phase of shopping around until you find something that seems reasonable, and where the people who have been doing it for a while uh, seem to have the qualities that tie in with your deep aspiration to be peaceful and to be steady in life. Do you want to look enough to kind of get a sense? Oh, yeah. They seem to be imbibing some of the qualities I'm looking for in myself. So what did they do? And then you listen. And then you try to check it out. And you become independent slowly, little by little, you become independent where you know enough about where you're going and enough about how to get there 
that every once in a while you need some clarification. But your practice is sort of uh, self-directing. Now that's far along, but that's the aspiration to become independent in the practice. So then you could hear teachings from a lot of different traditions because you know how to integrate it in what you've come to understand from your own practice about suffering and the end of suffering. You know, how the mind gets bound up in states of stress and how the mind is able to release, be released from those states of stress. And so you hear a talk from a Tibetan teacher or from a Zen teacher or from a insight or a Vipassana teacher like we practice here at the center or even a non-Buddhist teacher, you know, and we can just uh, distill really important teachings because we know how to use it and not get confused by it. But initially, we will get confused. So initially, find something that seems reasonable. Start digging. If it stays reasonable, keep digging. And just keep digging until you start to have some sense of independence. And then you can really benefit from uh, taking another teaching. So initially, you got to shop around a little until you find something that's reasonable. And then stop shopping around for a while. Dig in until you have some confidence from your own practice. And then it's okay, depending on your personality, to get teachings from outside again. Because now you've got your own understanding to use to integrate the different teachings you're getting. Does that make sense? No. And there are a lot of good traditions out there. But it's good not to just keep flitting around. Initially, flit around a little until you find something that's good enough. Then dig in for a while until you have some confidence that's coming directly from your own practice. You're really getting a sense of what the practice is. And then just anybody who seems to know what they're talking about, listen. And then practice integrating it. Yeah. Just sits on that. You're doing it. You showed up. You know, like things don't come by accident. You don't, and you don't end up in places by accident. Yeah, thanks. Other thoughts or questions that come to mind? Yeah. I just wanted to um, just quickly look at this. I, uh, in terms of getting into uh, acceptance and then, and then interest, when one is becoming interested, um, my understanding is that it involves uh, assessing something as a knowing rather than as a describing. Am I making it too hard? No, 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 that's, I think it's a good point. So what Sharon is saying, she's basically asking about the interest or the investigation. And it's not so much, as Sharon was saying, about describing what's happening as it is knowing. And one way to think about that is like, Instead of me going and investigating what's happening in the moment, it's more about in the space of the here and now, you could say the space of the heart or the space of the mind or this, in this space, we're allowing experience to present itself. So, and it's presenting itself, that means it's being known. Being known in the space of the present moment or being known in the space of the mind. Because that's quite literally what's happening. Things are being known here in the mind. The sight, I see Nancy over there, that sight and is being known in the mind, and then the perception, that's Nancy, is being known in the mind, and any feelings I have with that perception, that's also being known in the mind. And what is the mind? Well, the mind 
is the space of here and now. All of this, and then what's happening in that space, things are being known. Yeah. So that's the interest, is to allow things to be known. And here's the neat thing about investigation. It's already here, you know, like what's being known, it's already here. So we don't have to have the sense of energetically having to go somewhere to know the present moment. It's already here, and it's already the way that it is. So we don't have to, like, think, oh, this isn't it, right? Because whatever it is, like, if I'm a little confused, like, what's going on? Well, that's how it is, being a little confused about what's going on. So we never have to second-guess what's being known. So, so much of the investigation is a trust. Like, are we willing to trust what is presenting itself in the moment? Are we going to allow that to be? So you see the investigation and the acceptance, they go hand in hand. Thanks, Sharon. Other thoughts that come to mind? We have a couple minutes left. Yeah, in the back. Yeah, my name's Bruce. Uh, I went to visit my girlfriend, and I told myself a story about how I was going to turn out. And, of course, it didn't happen that way, so I was disappointed. Um, but I had the insight of knowing that I told myself the story, and I said expectations. Um, but having that insight didn't help me create didn't help you what with disappointment? Didn't alleviate the disappointment. So even though I knew what my role was in causing this and how it all happened, it still took another day or two for the disappointment to clear. Yeah. So I guess I'm kind of. Uh, it seems like it would be nicer if no one Yeah, that's a very good point, Bruce. But it's the way it is. <laughs> it would be nice, but that's not how it works. And actually, I think it's good that it didn't, doesn't work that way. Bruce mentioned that he went to visit his girlfriend and he noticed, he noticed, which is great, and he realized that that was good, that he noticed that he had expectations and he saw those expectations, but the residual, the pain of those expectations didn't go away just because he noticed that he had expectations. And there could be a couple reasons for it. One is, we may kind of know their expectations, but we might kind of be identified with the expectations. So there's a, a place in practice where we sort of know what's going on, and we're sort of identified or caught still in what's going on. So the, the steadiness and clarity of the mindfulness isn't complete. That's part of it, possibly. And then the other part is, if we've been attached, identified like to expectations in Bruce's situation, had expectations, and for a while before like visiting her girlfriend, we've been just spinning with those ex- expectations, thinking about them being energetically contracted, thinking about them being energetically contracted. Then in some moment we really see what's going on. We see that there's expectations, we see that they're painful, and there's some release but there's a lot of momentum that has been set in motion. And that has a residual. That The suffering, the experience of the heart being bound up, takes some time. It's the same thing. If I spent, you know, part of the day being rageful or being fearful, even if I catch it at some point and stop reinforcing it, the suffering 
the damage has been done to some degree. And we want to keep tuning in to the residual unpleasantness, in your case, of the expectations. Because if we don't, and we become not so mindful, the pain that's left over is going to trigger more neurotic patterns. So sometimes pain lasts for a long time. When we've made a big mistake, sometimes that pain never goes away in our life. And that doesn't have to be a problem. Now, clearly we would prefer not to have that pain of remorse or that pain of um, just loss or whatever that leftover feeling is. But if it's there, we can use it, right? It's like a teacher. It's telling us, don't ever do that again. That's what that pain is telling us. So you can use it as a teacher. It's basically whispering in a very steady way, expectations hurt, expectations hurt. There's actually a, a very important term in Buddhism about this, hiri otapa, the Pali words, for this wholesome concern and wholesome regret. It's like the how we transmute or transform pain into a teacher, the residual pain of life. It'd be nice not to have any residual pain from our life. But if we're going to have residual pain, let's let it teach us how to be a skillful human being. Because it reminds us, yeah, be careful. It's easy to do things that cause suffering. Thanks, Bruce. Just end by taking a few seconds together to let go of the words... Appreciate being in the room together, being in community, and part of this long community of women and men who have practiced in the past before us, one generation after the other, and somehow in their busy lives gaining insight, real freedom, able to share it with the next generation. Now we're the recipients of these wise teachings, these practical, profound teachings. It's our time to cultivate the practice as best we can in our busy lives and to realize real peace and wisdom and compassion and to be part of the continuation. So may this be so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.